This episode's part of a special feature series on New York City and is a co-presentation with the Museum of the City of New York with generous support from the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. Find us at yourhometown.org or on your favorite podcast app. He put the needle on the record. This thing said, it was a party night. Everybody was breaking. The highs were screaming and the bass was shaking. And it won't be long till everybody's knowing that Flash is on the B-Box going. And did boom, boom, boom. And I'm sitting here like this. What the hell is this? Shut on Give me a piece of paper. <laughs> I, the Alfred, give me a range of my school books. Got my black and white notebook and just started writing. Oh I got to do that. Where did you grow up is a question we're all asked a lot. But the answer is never as simple as a place on a map, is it? It's about the kid inside of us and what happened to them there. Before we met the world and the world met us. I'm Kevin Burke and this is Your Hometown. My guest is Daryl McDaniels, a legendary rapper who grew up in a neighborhood in Queens called Hollis, where he and his two friends formed one of the truly pioneering groups in American music, Run DMC. Now, Daryl was the DMC in that equation, and together with Joseph Simmons and Jason Mizell, they helped put Hollis on the map for an entire generation, me included. But before then, Hollis was just the neighborhood where they were kids, growing up in homes and on streets, where the gaps between blocks sometimes felt like the borders between different kingdoms. I lived in a suburban, lower middle class neighborhood of Hollis, Queens, New York. So what what was considered Hollis is that little strip from like 191st to 205th Street. So I lived on 197th Street. When you get down to like after 199th Street and below, it's more peaceful. From 199th to 205th Street is where all the supermarkets, the fish market, the cleaners, uh, the candy stores, the game rooms. So where I lived at was very quiet. When I was growing up, it was our block, a lot of kids. But then the kids from 196 would come play on our block, and the kids were from 198th and 199th and 200th Street would come on our block because our block had it going on. We was the block where you come to play football. You was the block where you come play tag, manhunt. You was the block when you come, you get in a sprinkler. <laughs> you was the block, we was the block where everybody come to ride your bikes, to ride the big wheels. Our block was <laughs> that block. And were there places that your parents told you not to go when you were a little kid? Yes, they said stay off Hollis Avenue. <laughs> and what did that mean? Well, that's where you had the drugs and the that's the ghetto was actually 203rd Street to 205th Street. What I mean by that, the pimp the pimps, the pushers, the drugs, the gangbangers. Um so 205th Street was the corner. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Where everything that was in every so-called ghetto was at. I couldn't leave the block till I probably was like 10. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty old. I mean, when you think about a neighborhood. Old. Oh, for sure. Being, you being don't leave limited. this block. Yeah, you don't leave this block. Like, because if you leave the block, you can get in trouble. And um, it always bugged me out, like the kids that were five and six that was leaving the block. And you're always jealous of those kids. When I was six, seven, and eight, it was like, you have your butt in this house when that street light come on. Because in the summertime, it let, the street light don't come on until really late. So I, I, I used to be mad that the other kids would stay outside. And I mean, I would hear kids outside 11 and 12 midnight playing. You know what I'm saying? Like, in my life, I'm, I'm a, I went to, I was a straight A Catholic school kid who had both parents, hardworking. But to my friends, young friends between the ages of 14 and 17 were going to jail. And that bugged me out. <laughs> I come from a safe little house, so jail to me is Batman arresting the penguin. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? The, the, the comic books, the bad, the, the, the villains, grown people only go to jail. And these are kids and these are your friends. Yeah, yeah. they were friends. You know what I'm saying? Their friends, um, Warren, Glenn, and Gregory, the boys, my mom, they could come and play the backyard. My mom, don't let them in the house. 
Then we started noticing, oh, they went to, the Spofford Detention Center was for the younger kids. But then I noticed all the kids that went to Spofford would go to Rikers. It was like a, it was like this process. You know what I'm saying? Yo, Charlie, where your dad at? He in jail. See, I can understand that. Then it took me a long time to realize that, oh, that's why Charlie's in jail, because his father's in jail and his father before him is in jail. A lot of these kids was going to jail for robbing houses and stealing. Like going into, um, going in, you know, going down to Jamaica Avenue where there was the sneaker stores, the Chinaman Mr. Lee that sells the Adidas, the Pumas, the Pro Kids, the hats, everything that we wore, everything you wanted from clothing to the record store to the boom boxes. It wasn't until I got older I understood what was going on. They didn't have a family structure, like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I, I started understanding even the, the, the kid with nothing is still a kid. He's going to come play and jump in a sprinkler and do all of that stuff. But when my ass went in the house at 8 8.30 when the sun was going down, that light came he on. went and broke in something. He went and robbed a local supermarket. He went and stole out the, the candy store to eat. I didn't know that he didn't have everything that I had. So they would come back from Spofford a little, but still playing and smiling with you. But as soon as their time with us was over, I would always see as soon as that 7.30, 8 o'clock nighttime came on, this hardness would come over now. Nineteen seventy-six, seventy-seven, the, the US, bicentennial. The bicentennial has passed, and New York's in hard times. It's a fiscal yes. crisis. Uh, you've got the blackout. You've got Son of Sam. That, all of that wasn't working. All, all that's going on, and the city is, as I mentioned, in a fiscal crisis. But you, your brother, had a different fiscal problem on his hands, which is he wanted to buy a turntable. And he, he saw a friend had it. It was starting to kind of be in the neighborhood, and he yeah. really wanted this. <clears throat> but it was going to come at a very steep price. Yeah. And he came to you, and he said, here's what we got to do. And I wanted you to pick up the story from there. So 76, the bicentennial, I remember it like it was yesterday. Like you said, New York was hell. It was death, destruction, despair, and darkness everywhere. But if you turn the TV on, you see Studio 54, you wouldn't think that. They get to have fun and play music for a couple of hours, and every care in the world goes out the door. So what we did as young people, we want to do that. Yo, we're going to do that. So we went and took our mothers and fathers hi-fi stereos. And if we didn't have a hi-fi stereo in the house, we would go to the junkyard and get the speakers and the, and the hi-fis that people threw away. And we would set up a DJ thing that plays music so we can have feel good for a minute. So we started doing Studio 54 in the streets of New York City. That's all it was in the beginning. When the blackout came, Grandmaster Cass said hip-hop really started it because when the lights went out, the stores got looted. Everybody that wanted to play music in a, in a beautiful way went and robbed the local um, stereo stores. My brother's friends, because I was still 12, so my brother was 15, Booby, Anthony Wallace, and my brother, they were older. So 15 and 18, were the older kids. Your high school kids, yeah. yeah You're still elementary school, school junior Exactly. Mm -hmm. So I remember Anthony Wallace was the first one to get his own DJ equipment because he worked. He didn't sell drugs. He didn't do sticks. He had, Anthony he had, had a, a job. <laughs> he worked on his father owned a gas station. So he worked at his gas. He would come home with the, the um, not Exxon, Esso. 
Remember, he used to be S.O. He worked there. He would wear the 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 um, the, the, the gas station attendant, oily, dirty. <laughs> had the little side, the oily rack hanging out. But he was young. You know what I'm saying? So Anthony got real equipment first. So we would all go over to Anthony's house. And I was still young. I didn't I didn't sit there the whole time. I would watch him and then go back outside, ride my skateboard and stuff like that. Booby, who also worked, they had real jobs. I'm talking about like nine to five jobs. You know what I'm saying? Booby was the first to get the techniques and the Booby was the first to get the equipment that they had at Studio 54 because he had a job. I think at that time, I was probably getting $5 a week or something like that. I think my brother was like getting 10 because he's a little older. That wasn't going to get us no equipment. But since, since I was in kindergarten and my brother was in third grade, we amassed this huge collection of Marvel comic books. And I remember him doing that. So we took loose leaf paper and with our marker, magic markers, not, they didn't even have Sharpies back then. Yeah, magic markers. Remember those packs of magic, cheap little magic yeah. markers? So McDaniels Brothers is doing a comic book sale. And we thumbtacked it up on the telephone poles and the trees all in our little neighborhood. And the doorbells just started ringing off the hook. Ding dong, ding dong. We bring them in the attic. People would buy the books, leave, buy the books, leave, buy the, about the third day into, this makes sense later, about the third day into the um, comic book sale, I think it was a Sunday, the guy from the other class didn't know him, didn't care about him, Joseph Simmons, him and his friend Harold rings my doorbell, hey Joey, hey Daryl, come on in, run, Joseph Simmons comes in, buy comic books and goes home, didn't know what was about to happen four years from now, but it was simple and that like was that. It. Yeah, that was it. That Amazing. was that first interaction. And then um, me and my brother, we got enough money to get a turntable and a mix in some records. Because all we did was take my mother and father's hi-fi stereo. So we just needed to get a turntable and a mixer. So we got the turntable and a mixer and some records. And we moved my mother's hi-fi stereo from the living room to the basement. So my mother and father come home pissed. Like, what the hell are y'all doing? What, what did you're ruining? We scratching and all that. So they do like we're ruining now. Nah, ma, this is the new thing that we're gonna do. So the beautiful thing about it, they let us do it because it kept us in the house, kept us from being up on Hollis Avenue. When Daryl was growing up, his parents said he had to be in the house when the streetlights go on. So most nights he was stuck in his room. He couldn't be with the kids who were playing music out in the street. He could only hear about it secondhand. But now that he and his big brother had sold off their comic books for a brand new set of turntables, Daryl took his world to the inside, more specifically, to the family basement. Now we took it to the underground. Oh, you took it down. We took it to the lab. <laughs> And tell me about that and, and how it changed your life and your so world. So we, we take it downstairs and, you know, at first it was more me watching them. But then, it's, this is the big brother thing. Everybody from all generations collect. Yo, when I ain't home, don't touch my turntables. Did I just hear this guy right? Yo, when I ain't home, like, with defiantly. You know what I'm saying? Don't touch my turntables. After you'd Good. sold your heart. Yeah, because basically <laughs> I'm young, stupid, I could break it and you might mess it up. And so you thought I would listen? No, every time he left, I went in the basement myself. Because most of the time I had to wait my turn. Booby, Anthony, and them, they three. And then right before they leave, I get 10 minutes. Now, Daryl, you could go. And I'm doing, it's no time for me to get better. And then when he would leave the house, now it's all me. And DJ Flash is taking um, the Good Times record that plays on the radio in its fullness. Good times, these are the good times. On the radio, when it gets to that break part, it goes, good times, boom, 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 boom. And the bass playing in the record goes off. DJ Flash on his tape is making it goes, good times, boom, boom. But ba boom boom Now, I can't see nothing, but I'm sitting there listening to it. Good times, boom, boom. 
Good times, and it does it again, bro. And it keeps going. I gotta help this what the what the hell is he doing? And Bernard said he's spinning the record back. And he's like, what the how does he spin the record back? Just in there, some trying to figure it out. Well, you gotta put something to make the record slip. So he explains that to me. So my brother leaves. I go in the base, I put good times on. Let me figure out how I could. So I take um I take um um I take the white paper that the record used to come in in that goes into mm -hmm. the album cover thing. I take that and I put the the, the record on it and then I cut with scissors around the paper then I put the paper on now I'm like okay now it slides back so then I just spent three hours in the basement trying to do what Flash did on the turntable how do I make good times keep going and I did it good times but, but my it would jump it would jump and jump but then on like the seventh try good times boom boom Good time. Oh, shoot, I did it. And after that first time, then it just became easy to me. So the next, the very, no, it was about two or three weeks later, seventh grade at um, 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 St. Pascal Bailon Elementary School. Billy Morris was in the eighth grade. He was about to graduate and go to high school. In seventh grade, we was in a schoolyard, and um, me, David Sinclair, and I forgot the other kid that was with me, we was playing ball in the schoolyard after school. And Billy Morris, who was in the eighth grade, he comes with one of those um, duffel bags, school, you know, typical mm -hmm. St. Pascal Bailon. It's a blue bag with the yellow writing with the, the school emblem yeah. on it and stuff like that. And he says, yo, y'all come here. So he was eighth grade. What we knew about Billy was his father, Billy was famous because his father was the custodian at all the public schools in our little community in Hollis. His father was the head janitor at 134, 118, 136, and all the schools in our little area. So Billy was famous, and um, Billy worked with his father. So Billy had all, like Billy was in eighth grade with Adidas and Pumas and, and Gazelles and all that. So, but Billy also, because his father worked at all the public schools, Billy also knew all the public school kids. The gangbangers, the troublemakers, and the drug dealing kids. Because you're in Catholic school, which is <clears throat> yeah, totally we're in Catholic. World. So Billy's only there because mm -hmm. his father works at the public school. He runs all the schools, so he got money to pay for his son to go to the good school. <laughs> but he got the remember the before the boombox, before the big two speakers and the the flat tape recorders. Mm -hmm. He had the Panasonic oh, yeah. and the, so he had one of those in the bag. And he said, "Come in." Well, we didn't know, right? So he's standing over the fence with his hand in the bag like this. And he said, yo, come in. So we act like we don't hear him. Because we said, yo, that's Billy Morris. He rolls with all the bad kids. He probably, we, we, and this is how naive he was. He probably, no, nah, I ain't going over there. He probably want us to smoke reefer or something. Like, and then he says, yo, come here. So we hold home. We act like we're here. And then he does this. Yo, I ain't going to say it again. So we walk over to him. And he pulls the flat Panasonic tape recorder out. Everybody who's an adult remember those. You push the button and it would pop up like that oh, and you slide the tape in. So he pulls out one of those and he pushes play. And we just hear doom, tat, doom, doom, tat, doom, doom, tat, doom, doom, tat. And then we heard a voice. When you mess around in New York town, you go down with the disco Chiba clown. You go down, go down, go down. You just keep the pep in your step. Don't stop till you get on the mountaintop. And when you reach the top, you reach the peak. That's when you hear Eddie Chiba, Eddie Chiba speak. And it stopped. We said, do that again. We sat there for three hours listening no, to kidding. one minute and 30 seconds of whatever that was. I did not know what that was. So after three hours, I'm like, Billy, can I hold that? Hell no, Daryl McDonald, you can't hold my tape of this. And I'm like, please, please, Billy, please. Like now I'm ready to do anything to get. I didn't know what it was. Because it made me feel a certain way. The music, the guy's voice, it just took me. Whoa, I didn't never got anything like this except from the comic books. So I was like, yo, Billy, Billy, um, 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 I'll give you the keys to my father's car. You can marry my mother. Like, he was like, ew. But he saw that I really wanted. So in his heart, he said, okay, Darren McDan, it was a Friday, last day of school before the weekend. You could hold my tape over the weekend. So I take it home, and my, 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 my brother had a Panasonic upright 
Mm-hmm. Little radio. No, my father. It wasn't even my brother's there. Had the Panasonic upright. So I took that tape home from Friday night to Sunday, 7, 8 o'clock before I went to sleep to get up to go to school the next day. All I did was listen to whatever that was. Wow. And it just made me feel good. Right around that time is when the song Rapper's Delight drops. See, now Sugar my, Hill Gang. my yeah. brother's in the, he's in the habit of going to Jamaica Avenue. They don't have these no more. The record store every weekend. 169th Street bus terminals with, from my house to 169th Street bus terminal, Jamaica Avenue, is about a 20-minute bus ride. So that was the weekly routine for everybody in the neighborhood. So he goes, and then, you know, he was getting Earth, Wind, and Fire, Isley Brothers, um, um, Cool and the Gang, all of that beautiful music that was coming out back in the 70s. So he's going there to, just to check. He's also um, learning to, to um, use the, 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 listen to the tape and try to figure out what song is that Flash using. So you go to the record store with your box and push the button to them. What song is that? And the guy was, oh, that's Grover Washington. He's over there in that section. The B or whatever. So it became, yeah. it, was, it was a process of researching and then shopping to get the music and stuff like that. All of a sudden, I woke up one morning and somebody said, disco sucks. And all of a sudden, disco died. So where you would see the disco records at... All of a sudden, you started seeing these hip-hop records. So my brother goes in there. He comes home with this colorful, um, um, the Sugar Hill Gangs, Rappers of Light, which was very colorful. Mm-hmm. Out of all of those singles in 33s and John 45, the, the Rappers of Light one, it was light blue with a rainbow on it. So it was very... And that would appeal to you because you're visual with the yeah, hot books. Yeah, exactly. Right? I love that. So I'm like, what is this? So he comes in the basement. He puts it on a turntable. And then I hear the Eddie Chiba thing that Billy Morris had told me for one minute, 30 seconds. I hear almost nine minutes of that on the record. I could listen, I listened to it like three times and I had the whole song down from start to end. So what happened was this rap, this record, this demonstration of the thing that I'm hearing in bits and pieces. This guy's DJing, but Eddie Cheever's rapping has now come together. So now it's at everybody's um, disposal. Um, so what happened to me, me being a smart guy, guys like Warren Green and Gregory, the guys in the gang and the guys robbing houses and stuff, it created a problem for me. It's a good problem, but it's not a good problem because after they get what they want from me, they're going to still pick, tease, pick on me, tease, and bully me. So guys like Warren Green and Gregory found out, oh, Daryl, he knows the whole record from start to end. Yo, Daryl, get over here, motherfucker. Sing Rapper's Delight. And I would have to sit there for everybody on the block. And they, they would sit there for a minute and hear me recite it all the way from stop to end. All right, when I'm so get the fuck out of here, motherfucker. Like, you know what I'm saying? I'm half I'm singing it, but then I'm not singing it no more like that. But then, this, this was crazy. A mm-hmm. couple of weeks later, my brother goes down to Jamaica Avenue record store. It was a white covering, not attractive like the Sugar Hill Records one. And it was just a red label record that said Enjoy Records on it. And it said, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. I'm like, what's this? Okay, this is that Grandmaster Flash DJ guy that just said. So he put the needle on the record. This thing said, it was a party night. Everybody was breaking. The highs were screaming and the bass was shaking. And it won't be long till everybody's knowing that Flash is on the B-Box going. And did boom, boom, boom. I'm sitting there like this. What the hell is this? Shanana! And then five different voices. In the description, it was a party. As they speaking, it was visual. It was a party night. Everybody was breaking. The highs was screaming and the bass was shaking. And it won't be long till everybody know when that flash was on the beatbox. Go when that flash was on the beatbox. Go when that flash was on the beatbox. Go Give me a piece of paper. <laughs> I, the Alfred, give me. I ran to my school books, 
got my black and white notebook and just started writing. Oh I gotta do that. In my basement, I became that day. I became um, Easy D, MC Easy D, because my name is Daryl. Starts with a D, and it's easy for me to write. Rappers Delight was hip hop to him, but this was it was a party night. It was the script. It was like a comic book came yeah, to life. Yeah, yeah, the form of it. Yeah. And that's the thing that now that's the thing that changed my life of how I what what was going to come out of me. But I wasn't thinking of it as a career. It just took to it took what I was doing in the basement, make believing to a whole other level. And how did that? How did the soundtrack of your childhood change with this? Arrival of hip hop from the Bronx and Manhattan. Up, up to that point, what were you listening to? What was oh, your soundtrack? Oh, great question. So during, um, during, I, I remember comprehending radio. I was born '64. Comprehending radio '69. Seventy-seven WABC was New York radio. I grew up from the late '60s all through the '70s, up until '79, where rappers delight listening to that station because. The soundtrack of my life was what's called classic rock now and folk rock. So for me, it was the Beatles, Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, um, Crosby, Stills, Young and Nash, Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, um, John Denver, Jim Croce, Harry Chapin, Janis Joplin, um, um, Neil Young and 77 WABC what was good about it was it wasn't segregated they would play Sly and Family Stone they would play Johnny Cash they would play John Denver they would play the Led Zeppelin they would play the Beatles they would play the Stones so remember I was a kid so most of the black R&B songs Aretha Franklin Marvin Gaye and Al Green for instance was about relationships yeah they're sex yeah it was sexy, sexual. So, and that's when my mother and father was cool. So that was my mother. And f my mother and fathers were still in their 30s at that time. So that was their music. That's the music they played Christmas and Hollis time. That's the music they played at the cookhouse. That's the music they played on Thanksgiving. Me as a kid, I didn't have a music that was mine. Even the Jackson 5 was my mother and father's mm. music. All the girls in elementary school loved Michael because he was so cute. But that R&B, soul music, and R James Brown, all of that music was my mother and father's. They, that's when my mother and father was still cool. So for me, listening to the 70s rock and the 70s um, um, folk rock in New York City, Dylan and all these guys coming to New York to play the Soho scene and all of that, what attracted me to that music was, outside of Marvin Gaye doing what's, what's, what's going on, and a couple of love, you know, Grover Washington, Stevie Wonder, and stuff like that. The rock stars and the folk stars always said words like government, presidents, mayor. The rock songs, even their love songs, would address social issues. They're John Fogarty, yeah. For Fortunate Son. Fortunate Son. Um, um, Neil Young's um, Ohio. It was the rock and the folk guys, it was like history and social studies for me. I can't relate to um, Al Green and Marvin Gaye and Michael Jackson. Never gonna say goodbye. I wasn't thinking about girls. It was John Fogarty saying words that I experience every day. You know what I'm saying? All of that was in me. I could never participate in what was going on in the streets of Queens. So I, could, I was never able to participate, so I just created my own. I would go down in the basement, I would put the instrumental on of Rappers and Light, 
and write my own rhymes. Like. So it's, it, it didn't start out as social as much as it was personal. So then exactly. take me from that as kind of your, this stew is, is, is kind of starting to heat up right. to the origin story of your collaboration with, you mentioned the, one of the customers at your comic book sale yeah. was Joe Joseph Simmons, yeah. who came around. How did your collaboration work, being that you were starting out in this kind of yep. personal basement, yep. trying things out? How did you two come to forge this dynamic so it's a perfect setup so um 78 this is what happened um we was in the schoolyard playing and um we had one basketball court in our schoolyard at st pascal bayline where we would play after school because you couldn't go to the public park and play with your uniform on because the public school kids would see you and take your money so david mckeachin comes and he dunks on the one rim that the Catholic school kids had that allowed them to play basketball after school, he dunks and he breaks the rim. And it falls to the ground and immediately we all start crying because there's nowhere to play basketball. But hold up, I got the best parents in the world. During last summer, my father put up a basketball rim in my backyard. So uh, McDaniel's saving again. Fret not, young friends of mine. My dad's the greatest. I have a rim in my backyard. So for the rest of the year, we're going to get out of school at 2.15 and we're going to go play basketball in my backyard till 3.30. Yes! So that's what we did for the rest of the year. All the kids would come to my backyard. It was about a 10-minute walk from my house to St. Pascoe and play. One day, um, Joseph Simmons just comes alone. So we just play basketball one-on-one and whatever, whatever. Um, there was a rule growing up and for everybody, but in my neighborhood especially. When there's no adults home, I can't have any company. And remember Dixie Cups? Oh, yeah. I would go get all the Dixie Cups, and I would come to the back door, give all my friends Dixie Cups, and one by one, they would come to there, and I'd fill it up with water. So you respected the rule. You didn't break yeah, it. Yeah, I couldn't didn't come break in. the rule. I was like, okay, yeah, it was very obedient. But I broke the rule this day, so it's just Joe. Usually, I would go get the pitch and give him a, it's just Joe. My parents don't get home till 4. It's 3.30. Today, come on in, Joe. And, and get the water. So he comes in. I say, go down, go wait downstairs. So he goes downstairs. I guess when he, I, he went down at my back door. It's here. So when you come in my back door, immediately left, you go down in the basement. I come downstairs with the water. He's like, he sees me and my brother's equipment. So he goes, yo, you do this? I go, no. This is my secret. I go, nah, nah, my brother does that. So he goes, Joseph goes, Yo, you ever see these flyers on a telephone pole or these posters talking about the um, the um, the DJ shows at um, 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 Olympia Palace, um, 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 Fantasia? They had these little hip hop clubs, and they, you know the, the promoters would put up flyers and posters. I was like, yeah. He said, you ever see one that says Rush? Rush Productions presents. I was like, yeah, I'm familiar. Well, that's my brother. My brother's Russell Simmons. He manages Curtis Blow. He does shows with Eddie Chiba, Grandmaster Flash. So he starts naming all the people that I've only been hearing by tapes. He's like, yo, my brother's a manager and a party promoter, this and that. And I'm like, oh, wow, wow. So I'm hearing that. So just to get my little invite, yeah, I dabble a little bit. You know, I admit it. And he's like, you do? Let me see what you could do. So I go over and I do the flash thing and Joe, he's like highly impressed. So from that day on, what we would do is we would get out of school. He would come over. We get out of school 2.15, but 2.30 we were at my house. We played basketball from 2.30 to like 3.15. And then from 3.15 to 3.55, we were going to the basement and DJ. One faithful day. We was in the basement doing what we was doing. I'll never forget. Um, and at, at this point, the block parties and the park parties is everywhere. So I'll never forget. Um, we were sitting there. And I would always feed people that came to my house because we always had food. So um, we were sitting there and uh, we had peanut butter and jelly and potato chips. So it was my turn to DJ. So Run, he looks over and he sees my black and white notebooks. And he picks them up and he starts reading and he sees my rhymes. And he goes, yo, Daryl, um, you wrote these? And I was like, yeah, it's, you know, it's so obvious what I do. And I'll never forget, he looks at me and he goes, it was like slow motion. He goes, 
when my brother Russell lets me make a record one day, I'm going to put you in my group. Imagine me here, and I looked at it, it went in one ear, and I, and I said to him, what the hell is he talking What's Because <laughs> I'm thinking, I don't do that. You do, Kurt, y'all do them. Ah, yeah, I'm going to say, yeah, whatever, whatever. So that was eighth grade. We graduated from St. Pasco Bayline Elementary School. Um, run, Joseph Simmons, went to Andrew Jackson in Queens. In Francis Queens. Lewis Bonnerant yeah. in Queens. Public Huge school. school back then, too, yeah. known for basketball, public school. Andrew Jackson, 10-minute walk from Hollis, if that, five minutes from, Joe lived on 205th Street. So it's five minutes from his house to Andrew Jackson, five minutes. Neighborhood high school that everybody went to. You even went to Andrew Jackson. You even went to Bayside High. You went to Forest Hills. Mm -hmm. You even went to Hillcrest. You even went to August Martin or you went to Flushing. All the neighborhood queen schools. Joe went to Andrew Jackson. Me, on the other hand, I graduated from, um, when I graduated 8th grade, St. Pascal Baylon, a lot of the kids who had good grades, there was this other school called Rice High School in Harlem, 124th Street and Lenox Avenue, right around the corner from the Apollo. A lot about, every year about six to 11 kids who left St. Pascal Baylon because they try to keep you in the Catholic school system. If you got good grades, you could go to Rice High School. So I had to take three trains and two buses to mm. go to Rice High School from ninth grade to high school. And how long would that take you door to door? If I left, we leave, we catch the 730F train, it would probably take 55 minutes. And round trip two hours a day is just commuting yeah. for school. Wow. To school. And um, if you was late, they would give you detention. We have to stand in detention for an hour. And the bad thing about that, if you live in Queens, you got to come home alone. So that was always scary to me. It was good when there was five or six of us traveling all the way from... But you missed that. You missed that. For, for detention. It's the scariest thing coming home by yourself. I had probably eight, nine times I had to do that. Whatever. But the kids there, um, their cassette tapes was everything hip-hop before Rappers Delight. Meaning they had tapes all the way back to 74, up to the point of 79, before hip-hop even made it to Queens. And I was hearing what Flash was doing when he, I was hearing Flash at 21, 20, 21. When I got to Rice High School, the kids that lived in this neighborhood had, it's like hearing Miles Davis Right. Before he even played the bottom line. Yeah, yeah. So I'm hearing all of that, and it changed my perception of what, what to write. Um, so I'm, every day I'm going to school, there was this guy named Terrence Washington. And every week, at the end of the school week, he would come with a briefcase full of cassette tapes. And he would open it up, and it would be this tape from 73, this from 76, this group from here, Curtis Blow in 1975. And... He would make a lot of money because kids yeah, would sure. buy these live performances. So in um, 12th grade, Terrence Washington has this, this section in there and it says, Cold Crush 4 versus the Fantastic Five at Harlem World. And I was like, you know, Terrence, how much is that one? You can't have that one. That one's $12. I only had six. I'm like, yo, what's that about? Well, that's the infamous battle. There was a place in, in Harlem called Harlem World. It was a world-famous club. You had Harlem World. You had the Disco Fever. Terrence was like, yo, that one is $12. I only had six. I was like, Terrence, man, I'll give you six and I'll owe you the rest. And he's like, yo, you better make sure you give me my money. So the rest of the year, I kept ducking him. <laughs> <laughs> I only get $8. I'm not giving up my allowance. So the rest of it came me ducking Terrence Watson. But what was significant about that was on that tape, the Cold Crush Four was doing a performance where they took the melody of Harry Chapin's Cats in the Cradle. So that thing was like, um, the initials of my name are GMC. You can search all your life and you'll never see a higher powered body rocket in a galaxy. I'm the first and never last. What's your name? I'm the grandmaster. Cast well. The initials of my name are JDL. I want to go to heaven before I go to hell. And I'll be pushing more power than a Duracell. It was very catchy. And I was like, what? What is so familiar? 
Child is born just the other day. Came into the world in a usual way, but there was bills that planes to catch and bills to pay. And the cat's in the cradle and a silver spoon. Little boy blue and a man in the moon. Right. Oh, and it was immediate connection. So they were, Grandmaster Cass was GMC. Jerry D. Lewis, named after Jerry Lee Lewis, the rock guy, was JDL. When I heard that, it was a Harry Chapin melody that I heard on the radio my whole childhood. Them talking about them, and it's not a, like a political record. It's like a folk song, looking out my back door, made me change EZD to DMC. Oh, I'm going to use my initials and I'm going to start doing it. So I started writing all of these DMC rhymes in 12th grade. Daryl graduated from Rice High School in 1982, and that spring and summer would be huge for him. His music was about to take a really important creative turn, and he was on the precipice of getting into college, which wouldn't be too far away at St. John's University. It started with a trip to the mailbox. Come home one day, and there's a letter there. We're happy to say that you've been accepted. So, my mother and father ain't home yet. Remember, they worked. My whole life they worked and got home at four o'clock. I get this letter, oh my God, I'm in St. John's University. You know what I did? Ran to the basement and wrote a rhyme about going to St. John's. I'm DMC and the place to be, I'm going to St. John's University. And since kindergarten, I acquired the knowledge. After 12th grade, I'm going straight to college. I'm light skinned, I live in Queens and I love eating chicken and cats. So I wrote that rhyme. Before you had a song to insert it into? Yeah, so wow. I wrote that rhyme. That was in, um, um, that was in June of 82. June, July, probably like July of 82. In August of 82, the phone rings and it was Joe. Now we've been seeing each other on and off, but we wasn't as close. We didn't see because he went to Andrew different Jackson, and I went to Rice, class. right? And but in August of '82, um, the phone rings and it's Joe. Yo, Daryl, what's up, man? Yo, my brother's gonna let me make a record. I want you to make a song with me. We're gonna make a song called "It's Like That," and that's the way it is. So I know you smart motherfucker. He was real funny. You smart. I just want you to write about how the world is. Oh, I got that down packed. All right, cool. Just do that. We're going to go to the studio next Sunday. All right, cool. So I go in and I write all of these rhymes about how so the world is. you must have made is. some impression on him. In other words, that he had remembered this. He'd followed he away. He remembered that, yeah. This is made four this years later. Four years later, which is forever when you're a kid. For sure. So he for filed him it away that this was the call he was going to make. Yeah. And the chance you know, came yeah, for him. Remember four years ago? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm finally making this record. I'm going to call this record. It's like that. Just go write about how the world and what the world is like now. Yeah. For me, it was still make-believe because my first time in a recording studio... I'll never forget walking downstairs into Green Street Recording Studio when I first saw the control room. I'm still playing. I go, I have shrunken down like Ant-Man and I am inside of the boombox. Because <laughs> the, 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 the writing created was just like homework. Yeah. So I'm in there seeing this. I'm pretending I'm Ant-Man inside of the boombox. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so we go in and we record. It's like that. <clears throat> and... um. After we had recorded It's Like That, I just noticed that something's missing. Because originally it was, it's like that. And I was like, okay, it's missing. It's like that. Um, and that's the way it, Joe, we got to put it, that's the way. So that's where the whole Run DMC feeding off of each other came from. Because he had It's yeah. Like That already. And I was like, something's missing. So we would go, it's like that, Joe. We need to go in. That's the way. And everybody, yeah, that's brilliant deal. You know what I'm saying? And even though Russell didn't want me, he didn't see me as a performer. He, mm -hmm. bought, he wouldn't let me write and stuff. He didn't see me as he saw Joe and Curtis Blow. He was like, that's your, as that's your knuckle. Right. He didn't see me as a professional. He's that's your knucklehead friend Daryl. He don't do this. The, sec, the, sec, the B side was Sucker MCs. That's why if you listen to Sucker MCs, run rhymes three times. Yeah, you come in later. At the very, I wasn't even supposed to be on the record. After he did his verses, he says, D, go in there. And I'm like, no, you didn't tell me nothing about this. He was like, don't worry about it. Just say your newest rhyme. You got to be on this record. And now that you're on this like that, you got to be on this one too. Russell didn't want me on Suckham C's. So he sends me in a booth and he says, D, just say your new rhyme. Just say your newest rhyme. So my newest rhyme was about getting accepted you to St. John's University. Yeah. 
So I'm like, okay, he DMC in if you're ready. The people rocking steady. Driving big cars, get your gas from Getty. And I hit my verse, that little verse at the end. He got it all in the boom. You know, when it start, when the beats commence. When I came out the room, the whole studio erupted like, yo, it's because they had never heard a guy talking about college and chicken and collard greens. Yeah, like it was yeah. new. Mm -hmm. And that was the day Run DMC was formed. I'm DMC in the place to be. I go to St. John's University. And since Kenny got it, I acquired the knowledge. And after 12th grade, I went straight to college. I'm like Kenny. I live in Queens. And I love eating chicken and collard greens. So... Um, people started calling Russell's management. I want to book. Nobody knew what we looked like. Because remember, there's no video album cover. But the record was so hot in the streets. Yeah, we want to book Run DMC. So Russell calls, yo, I'm going to get you some shows. Y'all need a DJ. Run goes, huh? Me and Daryl can DJ. Russell's like, no, y'all need a DJ. Your to do your yeah. Oh, shoot. Yeah. Run was like, I didn't think about that. Joe went to Donnell Smith. Yo, you know that guy Daryl McDaniels who lives down in 197? Like Smith didn't know, because I don't have her, I ain't, you know, I'm I'm not known. Yeah. So he's like, yeah, yeah, that's Butterfriend. Butterfriend's Douglas. That's yeah. Butterfriend, yeah. Me and Daryl McDaniels, we got this record. We need you to be a DJ. What? What? Yo, cool, cool, boom, but yeah, I'm down. He was DJ Nelly D. A week later, Nelly D comes to me and Joe, yo, I can't be your DJ guy. And we was like, yo, you know, what happened? Why not? Why not? Smith goes, yo, I can't be your DJ because I got a job. I'm working at the post office. So he's like the best of our DMC. But it wasn't that big to us. It right. wasn't a career. Like, did he now, later? What you stumped? Did he later on having a like job? Right, right. In New York City as a young black man at the post office, you're not bagging at the supermarket. No, that he had benefits. I got a job. That's grown man stuff. So Run's like, shucks, what are we going to do? Run's like, I don't know, I'm going to ask Jason. So Run went to Jason. Yo, Jason, um, Nelly D can't do it because he got a job. Whoa, Nelly got a job. Whoa, whoa. That's big. Everybody talking about it. Everybody in Hollis was, yo, Nelly got a job at the post. No, a job at the post office. You work for real. You work for the government. Like, you got a, you're a real person. That's a huge accomplishment. You know what I'm saying? And Nelly looks back and laughs and says, that's so funny. Oh, my God. So Jay says, yo, y'all want me to be the DJ? And Jay was like this, hold up. Y'all going to pay me to do what I do in the park for free? I'm in. And thinking, building on that, <clears throat> when you think about it, the three pivotal members of the group, Joseph Simmons, DMC, which is you, mm -hmm. and Jason Mazzell becomes Gem Master Jay, thanks to your naming. You each come from Hollis, right? Yep. Which is a small section of, the Queen, of Queens, of which Queens. is a borough of New York. Yeah. But you each represent different parts of Hollis. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, mm -hmm. how did each of you bring your own version of Hollis and who you That's were really into great. the group? For me, it goes back to um, me. I had both parents, smart kid. I lived down on a quiet end. So my whole demeanor was a little different. I lived on 197th. You go further up. Once you get past 199th, that's when it starts getting low. Jason, Jam Master J, Jason Mazel, he lived on 2-3rd. So he lived in the middle of Hollis. You walk to his corner, it was crazy there. Jason came from a bigger family. I think it was his, um, his father died early. So his mother, who was a school teacher in Brooklyn, supporting him, his brother Marvin and Anita, and all their kids. Jason had the typical, Jason's, Jason's house was good times on steroids. So Jason, but Jason, Jason was like Warren, Glenn, and Gregory. He was in that house robbing, stick up kid world. But he also had this characteristics. He also, remember I said I didn't play ball? Jason was Warren Glenn and Gregory. He was the ball player and he was the DJ. So for being in the middle, this is really ironic. Um, being in the middle of, and it's not a coincidence, being in the middle of Hollis, he had all the characteristics of all the kids in the neighborhood. So that means Jason was the guy that would stop the, the, the bully from teasing the nerd because Jason would go play with the nerd. So Jason had the characteristics of every kid in the neighborhood and was able to 
participate in all extracurricular activities. Most of all of Jason's friends are either dead or in jail. Jason was the kid that was lucky enough not to go to jail. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Jason played ball. He was on the UBA basketball team. Um, 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 uh, but he ran. His crew was the guy. The, his crew was John Dillinger and Pretty Boy Floyd. <laughs> Those were Jason's mm -hmm. best friends, and they looked at Jay as the guy yeah. who brought that into them. Joe, Jason's on two. I'm 197. Jason's two third. Joe's on two fifth. He's on the end of Hollis Avenue, you know what I'm saying, where Joe saw the aftermath of what would happen with the pimps and Bush. I didn't know what it was doing. Jay was in the midst of it, and Joe would get the aftermath. On Jason, Joe's in the Hollis is where the guy, this is weird, most of the guys who got out of jail lived in Joe's little section of Hollis. So our characteristics was the thing that divine to find us to have that universal appeal. Um, I met, I actually met Jay before I, uh, I knew Joe. I met Jay because my best friend Douglas, who played basketball, played with Jay. And I, I remember one quick meeting. I remember um, I probably was 16 or 17 years old. I didn't play basketball, but Douglas played. So I was sitting there one day, and Douglas was there, come over here. I want to introduce you to Jay and Wendell Fight, DJ Hurricane of the Beastie Boys, was Jay's best friend growing up in Queens. And what was crazy about Hurricane and Jason, in 9th, 10th, and 11th grade, they both went to Andrew Jackson with Run. The way Run DMC dressed is how Jason and Hurricane went to school in high school. The Godfather had the gold chains and the Adidas. That's how they dressed because they was, you know, that click. It was the money-getting, athletic guys that get the girls and all of that. And that's so weird. So I'm the quiet, nerdy kid. Jay's in the midst of that. And then Joe's like the aftermath. Because even for Joe's sake, Joe was only known because he was the son of Curtis Blow. But Russell had the reputation. And... um the combination, the mixture was more appealing than everything that was already out. And I think it was because we were from everybody the from the Bronx and Manhattan, even at, like hip, everybody's mad at hip hop now because it all sounds the same. Because everybody's from Atlanta. Everybody's <laughs> from the South. So everybody's successful, but it's something that becomes um, monotonous becomes boring. So hip hop started to get boring because everybody is rhyming about what was going on in the Bronx and Manhattan. The combination of Run DMC gets us a record deal. When we wasn't on the road, we were still on 2-3rd Street. We were still on 2-5th. We were still in Jamaica Park. We were still hanging and going to the same stores and hanging on the street. Like Run DMC, the biggest things in music in 84, 85, 86, we still where we at. Butter would tell me, yo, that's the hundredth time that car came around the corner. Oh, yo, you see that car over there? That license plate says Ohio. People were driving from other states, too scared to get out to say something, but they would come see these Queens. mega stars. Yeah, like, yeah. Our friends noticed that. We we ain't thinking nothing. Like that. You know what I'm saying? Run. He got a little sheltered though, cause he he the fame he knew he was famous. I had no idea I was famous. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't like fame to me. It was like like for me, it was like wow, I get to stand next to Africa Bambada. Joe to run, it was all competition. To Jay, it was being fly. Like you know what I'm saying? Jay wasn't conceited, but to Jay, it was like I'm Stevie Wonder, motherfucker. You know what I'm saying? For run, it was like he was a little um. Um, he wanted the power, but he couldn't, he didn't know how to handle the attention because he wasn't, I think it was easy for me. I would sit in the midst of the Crips and Bloods because I wasn't, <laughs> Run was conscious of the crease when they going to rob me. To me, I, since I didn't see myself as that, it, the vibes didn't come off like that. You know and what I'm saying? Did, and how did the other <clears throat> MCs who were your heroes react to hated us. this new group? Hated us. In the beginning, they hated us. <laughs> First of all, who in the hell, that thing was, who in the hell is these dudes from Queens talking and folding their arms and grabbing themselves with all this attitude? It was disrespectful to them. Like, they, 
Melly Mel said he thought Rem was talking about him on Sucker MCs. It wasn't until they started reading our interviews where your cousin Grandmaster Flash and the Cocos Four. But prior to that, prior to the Rolling Stone interviews and the um, Spin Magazine interviews and the, on the, the, the MTV interviews. They just had your songs to go on. And, they right. and our reputation for having the best show ever. We came into this game like we, nobody does it better than us, and it worked. Yeah, it was crazy for them. They hated us. And, and also, your, your life experiences were different than theirs, I'm imagining. Right? The story of hip hop at that point was we from Queens. the message versus Queens. Yeah, right. We were soft. What the hell are the these guys saying? Suburban kids. They come from Queens, New York. I'm from Harlem. I'm from yeah. Manhattan. Yeah. I'm from the Bronx. Fort Apache. Okay, so Hollis wasn't the Bronx. But somehow, Run DMC made it almost as dramatic with their music. And from there, they took their sound revolution on the road. Remember, there were three of them. Daryl, DMC McDaniels, Joseph, Run Simmons, and Jason, Jam Master J. Mizell. And together, they circled the globe, singing their songs about where they were from. Now that whole time, Hollis, the real Hollis, was going through its own changes. And when Daryl came off the road in the late 80s, he may have lived there in the same house where he grew up, but now everything around it felt haunted. I came off the road and this stuff called crack mm. had made it to Queens. When I left, it was no different than when I was little. I was just older now. You know what I'm saying? We're running DMC. In 88, we left, came off of tour, came back from Europe. I think we did like um, two months going to Amsterdam, Germany and everything. Came back home. And I remember coming back home and one of my friend's sister, who was the most beautiful girl ever growing up, everybody wanted to date her, all the young kids fantasize about her, came up to me looking like the walking dead. And I was like, what the hell? And then I walked up on Hollis. And up on Hollis, I started hearing such and such the shot up, um, just to change names, Little B done shot up Prince's house. Prince wasn't home. They beefing over who owns Two Third Street. And these are kids that grew up together. This crack thing not only destroyed people who were using it, it destroyed the people who were selling it because there was so much money at stake. So Little B shoots up Prince's house. Prince wasn't home, but Little B killed Prince's mother. Prince's mother died holding Prince's daughter. She died with the baby in a gunshot. What the hell? This person then shot, took, what's his name, to the, um, to, to the, um, 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 the Belt Parkway over there, over there in Brooklyn, over by the swamps, and then shot him up to... I came off the road in 88, and the Hollis was the Bronx. The, the, little, um, the little apartment developments all boarded up and closed up. My man's sister looking like the walking dead. He's in jail. He's dead. He done kidnapped him, this and that. So I started hearing this. I come right home. Mom, go look for a house. We're moving. So my mother and father found a house in um, Freeport, Long Island. Which was cool for me because I was like, Freeport, the next town over is Roosevelt, Long Island, where Public Enemy was from. <laughs> and I would see Chuck and Flavor all every day. But at that time, I didn't move out of my parents' house till I got married. Because I was like, um, why should I get a house? I'm yeah. never, I, I mean, from 80, in late 84, uh, my whole life on the road, 84, 85, 86, 87, 88. I was never home. Everyone, I'm Diana Williams. And I'm Bill Ritter. We begin with a fatal shooting of a rap music legend. The shooting tonight in a recording studio in Queens, taking the life of the man known as Jam Master J. Two thousand two, Halloween, Jam Master J's murdered right, oh, right. at a studio. I, you tell the story in your book, you're home, it's on the news, you don't believe it first. You roll up 
you see Chuck D crying, you realize it's real. Yep. And I was going to ask you, not only was that a tragedy and you know all that comes with that, but how did that event and losing someone who was so close to you and part of your creative journey change the way you saw or see your hometown? Oh, wow. That's a deep question. Um, when Jam Master Jay got killed, it was... Um, it was it wasn't a revelation it was a confirmation of everything that my mother feared don't you leave this block don't you go up on Hollis Avenue everything that I saw with Warren Glenn and Gregory and the kids that was going to jail and stuff like that everything that we saw with you know most of Jay's friends getting killed and murdered and stuff like that um everything I heard about in the Superfly movies, everything that I heard about all the evil that I saw in the comic books, it was confirmation that nobody's immune from it. Not, uh, look, Queens isn't the Bronx, but it is. Queens isn't Compton, but it is. It was confirmation that everything that we fear can touch anybody at any moment and that's a scary confirmation it's not a revelation I see it other places didn't think it was going to hit here and the reason why I say it like that was Jay's studio was five minutes from where he grew up he made it out he didn't have to stay in Queens he could have look even if he if didn't stay in Queens he could have put his studio in Manhattan uh, 45th and 8th around the corner from Diddy's studio he could have in a professional area of Manhattan and be established as a major player and mm -hmm. he could have put his studio in LA down the block from Dr. Dre's studio his studio was five you could walk from Jay's house to where his studio was at it was in front of the 169th street bus terminal that we been going to since we could walk across the street from the Queens Public Library that we've been going through. So Jay made it through and he created he, he Jay made it through the door and left the door open for others to follow. The very thing Jay escaped from that he was trying to get his whole neighborhood to escape from is the very thing that killed him. The dark side of your community. But Jay didn't run from it. He stayed, he looked it in the face. Whereas you had seen in 88 when you came back, the changes in the neighborhood and were, you realized you did Yeah, let me get a, your parents exactly, out exactly. It's crazy. Now, I remember saying, um, I think this in MySpace was still out. I remember saying on MySpace, and I got cursed out too, I'm not mad at the guy that shot Jay. Motherfucker, motherfucker, you deep bad. Yo, it was crazy. And I was like, oh, let me refrain. I said, yo, my fight isn't against the individual that shot Jay. And it made me that. That's why, um, that's why I look up to Lennon. And that's why I look up to Fogarty. And that's why I look up to Dylan. That's why I look up to James Brown for speaking up during the civil rights movement. That's why I look up to Marvin Gaye for defying Barry Gordon. Barry Gordy's orders to write what's going on. Marvin, this is going to ruin you. People sing about sex and love. Now I got to sing for my people. You know what I'm saying? My fight isn't with the individual that shot Jay. And this is what people understood. My fight is against the mindset that would cause that individual to do it. Jay literally showed me that. I'm not leaving these people. I'm staying right there. And I see a lot of these new guys because they're making way more money than we did in our era. They're saying we can't no, you don't have to live there, but you should have a presence every day. Throughout whatever it is that you do, you're able to escape from is the very thing that will destroy you unless we all become responsible. That's the difference. It's only a, a chosen few and, a, and, a, and a, um, a lot of people will... You know, a lot of people will look at me and say, oh, do you, like, I think I'm street. Like, why does a guy that sells drugs got to be called street? You ain't from the street. I'm from the street and I read comic books. I want a kid to look at me coming from the street as a straight A student the same way they look at the guy that got a name with a drug dealer. Mm -hmm. So that's what Jay represented. You know what I'm saying? He had, like I say, it's funny for Jay. He had all the characteristics. And the very thing that took his friends away from him 
was the very thing that took him away from us. Thank you for listening. When Daryl and I met up, we spoke for something like four hours. And as you could hear, he's completely absorbing. The words just flowed, and talking about growing up in Hollis brought him there and back again. It was music history, but personal in a way that I found very moving. And we weren't even done, because in putting his episode together, we realized we had way more than one album of material to work with. We really had a double album. So for that ride through New York, please listen to our next episode coming in two weeks. It'll present a totally different take on this very same guy. This time, not so much about the place where he grew up. This one will be about the world inside Daryl's head, because it turns out he was haunted by a family secret that his parents knew, his brother knew, his cousins knew, his aunts and uncles knew, but nobody told him until he was 35 years old. And when he found out, he says, It was a soul-crushing, emotional, spiritual, um, Catastrophe. Your Hometown is a Kevin Burr production. For more, please visit our website at yourhometown.org. And when you're there, don't miss the art, including illustrated scenes and a hand-drawn map of the landmarks Daryl mentioned as key to his story. You can also follow us on your favorite podcast app and on social media, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And please, please check out the show's New York City series page, including information on live events on the Museum of the City of New York website at mcny.org slash yourhometown. Now I'd like to give up to the amazing team that made this episode of Your Hometown with me, especially our executive producer, Robert Krolwich, our art director, Nick Gregg, editor and sound designer, Otis Streeter, composer, performer, Sterling Steffen, and our brilliant researcher, Shaquille Khan. I'd also like to thank our musical consultant, Henry Pearson, for his work throughout the development of the show. Our branding and website design is by Tamara Creative, and our social media team is led by Cure and Jessica St. Bear. A special thanks, too, to our co-presenters on this special New York City feature series at the Museum of the City of New York, especially Whitney Donhauser, Cheryl Victor Levy, Fran Rosenfeld, Keith Butler, Jerry Gallagher, Jennifer Hernandez, Lillian Lesser, Danny Curtin, Corin Infantino, Lizzie Marmon, Brittany Benham, Meryl Cooper, Robin Carroll, G.A. Mayujima, and Tara Dawson. I'm also eternally grateful to our financial supporters, especially the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, which believed in this idea about New York and gave it a chance. Let me also thank those who were there for me from the very beginning with their support. The J.M. Kaplan Fund, Lane Gate Foundation, Lori and John Beresford, Claudette Mayer, Paul Sperry, Victoria Morris, Peter Wolf, Ken Halpern, the Newberg Institute, David Hamar, and Anonymous Donor. Until next time, thank you so much for taking this ride with me. And remember... Everyone's from someplace, and everywhere is somewhere.